Welcome to Hot Plate, a post-foodie podcast. I'm your host, Joshna Maharaj. Today on Hot Plate, cooking with Zooming grandmas, comfort versus nostalgia, the Korean kimchi crisis, and the state of plants and fungi today. Welcome back. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Laura. We're here. Well, we're happy to have you here for the second week as our guest host. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Uh, so for our listeners, we have wonderful guest host. Laura Brejo is a food reporter for the National Post. She earned a culinary arts certificate and professional fromager certificate from George Brown College. Laura graduated with a BA honors from Ryerson University's RTA School of Media and a BA in linguistics and anthropology from the University of Victoria. She has an interest in the cultural significance of food and foodways and believes in the importance of building culinary skills and access to healthful food for all. Thanks. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much. We have, these are some very exciting things that we're going to talk about today. These are some of my favorite things and those connect to sort of the overlap between cooking and tradition uh, and a little bit of political resistance, uh, just for good measure. Uh, so the first bit that I'm bringing to the conversation is this program called Grandma's Hands. Uh, and this is a wonderful program that is uh, alive in the U.S. where essentially Black grandmothers uh, are, are, are feeding their communities while passing on food traditions via Zoom calls online. And that is like the, the clash of all of these things together got me super, super excited, uh, right? Anchored in a need to uh, teach young people how to cook traditional foods, um, but also just uh, there's a food security angle on all of this. And then there's just the sweetness of grandmothers in Zoom calls, uh, which uh, I found so, so lovely, but particularly at this sort of sociopolitical moment uh, where Black American stories and tradition and heritage are really uh, being solicited and given some light for, in many, many cases, for the first time ever. Uh, I was I was really into this because I myself am a bit worried about the generation that is passing without their knowledge being you know being kept and and appreciated this way. Um, have you have you heard or seen about other things like this or how does this how does this hit you? Well, I think this is really beautiful, and I, I think the the one thing that kind of struck me about Grandma's Hands in particular is just that. It's, you know, a way of sharing knowledge with another, uh, with a younger generation, right. but it's also about creating a space um, just for conversations around food and cooking, uh, yeah. as well as you said, you know, um, food security and, and, and in a sense, uh, educating about um, the food system as well by connecting these people to farmers in, in the local area. So I think it's this, this amazing combination of a lot of different things happening. Right. Uh, it's, it makes me... I actually went to the website to see about how I could sign on. Oh, nice. To watch one because it will be such a, a treat to watch it and to make that connection. There was for a while, and I think maybe she may still be there, uh, Anona on YouTube who was teaching people how to make pasta. Right. Uh, I don't know if this was just a, a, a pandemic lockdown thing or if this was before then, uh, but I really, really appreciated that. And her sweet, her sweet old hands that have the memory about how to fold all those little tiny bits of pasta was just amazing. And you know what this this actually reminded me of too um, is a is a new book um, that I have. It's it's called In Bibi's Kitchen by Hawa Hassan. Okay. And she focuses on eight African countries 
that touched the Indian Ocean. Uh, and but really at the at the heart of it are grandmothers, uh, BBs. And so she highlights these grandmothers in each of these countries, you know, sometimes, um, you know, they, they've been forced to, to flee. And um, so really all over the world and how she connected with these women was also over, you know, Zoom calls or FaceTimes oh, so where nice. they showed her how to make these dishes. And so the book is really a collection of these BBs, these grandmothers dishes, um, but as well uh, their stories in their own words. And it's all about family and connection and community. And um one thing how uh, the author also points out is that the voices of these matriarchs uh they're so often missing from conversations right. about food yep that's the, and that's a really uh, that's a really important thing it's like it's like an undocumented history right cuz yeah. we don't hear from them we don't know this uh and now that they're old 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 ladies uh, the the effort to harness this is super super important. Uh, I was super delighted about this. Um, and the the intergenerational play uh, is something that feels really important. And we're not, I don't know, man, we're not going to uh, grow and and make great decisions for the future if we have such. I believe, right? If we have such uh, a severed connection to what our past was all about, uh, I would. Uh, I, it, it makes me think about finding all the old Indian aunties around the place and starting to get their biryani recipes or, you know, uh, and really uh, har- and mine all of that because that wealth is something that would just break. It, it can't die with them. Right. And we have to we have to figure a way to put that together because I know what it's like. Just this past weekend, I made some stuffing uh, with my mother was here visiting me and we made this stuffing that her mother actually made. And it's one of the very few recipes that we have. Um, and hilarious that it's stuffing. That is this, you know, and there's also a shortbread recipe like this, which is super funny because it's a more sort of hilarious nod to our deep colonial roots, uh, with my, my South African Indian family. Um, but it was, I got to hear stories about how, my mom puts way more butter in there than her mother put in because, you know, that's how she liked it. Or she remembered hearing the sounds of this and, you know, around Thanksgiving time. And, and it was the first mashed potatoes are involved in this stuffing. Uh, but now there's no other moment where those stories emerge. You know? And what do you think about that? Just the oral transmission of, of recipes versus, right? There's something so special Definitely. and unique about it. Definitely. It is because what I have learned is that it is, all of my other senses are involved in my understanding of, you know, because you don't write, I can't write down on a piece of paper, uh, we'll cooking till it smells right. Right. I can't, that's not there. Or you want to wait for the sound of something to pop and sneeze, you know, or, or hiss in the oven. Uh, right. Or it's just the fact that the, the, the sound of the three bangs of the spoon on the side with my mom's gold bangle involved <laughs> in all of that is just a really, that takes me back to a certain place in a certain time. And these are things that you can't unfortunately lock on a page. So by this point, you know, almost nine months into the pandemic, you know, comfort, the idea of comfort food, comfort eating is, you know, we're, we're pretty, we're pretty comfortable in that. We're, we're in that groove. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we know we're what we're doing. Yeah. But I did, I did start thinking about this whole concept of eating nostalgically and what it really brings us. And also, is it possible to, to kind of recapture, um, 
the feelings that these foods gave us when, when we were a kid that say that we have a comfort food that we really associate with a certain time in our lives. Mm -hmm. And, um, it all kind of stemmed from uh, General Mills, who announced uh, that they were returning to these 80s cereal recipes, these um, yeah. retro, so, you know, high sugar, no right. messing around with the artificial colors and this and that, right? Like, throwback, 100%. Oh, so we're talking like alphabets, kind of. Well, they're going, they're going right back to the sugar. 80s taste. Cocoa Puffs, Golden oh, Grahams, okay. Cookie Crisp, and Tricks. Tricks. And so they're, they're apparently trying to kind of woo millennials back to eating cereal, essentially. Yes. Yes. And so it really made me think, like, as adults, you know, would a bowl of Cocoa Puffs <laughs> yeah. really please us in the way that it did, you know, on that Saturday morning, you're pouring your cereal, you're sitting down, you're eating it in front of the TV. Cartoons. Yeah. Yeah. There, I, I, I wondered the same thing. Uh, and in fact, just recently I found myself with a box of Fruit Loops. <laughs> you didn't. I did. I did. <laughs> and I was like, I wonder, I wonder if this is the same feeling. What right? happened? What uh, happened? And uh, the, one of the most similar uh, experiences was the feeling of the scrape on the roof of your mouth when you don't let it get soggy enough and you dive right in a bit too early, perhaps. That happened again, and that was funny remembrance. Um, but I started thinking about eating this, and we, my family, Fruit Loops was never a thing. That was like we would have it once when we went camping, but that was there's no reason at all where that that that, that was an everyday thing. Same. Uh, never, but it, um, and then, and then the other piece that I connected to was the, was the sweet milk, right? The, the few slurps of sweet milk at the end, that was a sort of nice memory and remembering younger versions of me that had to learn about the right level of balance and, and tilt on the bowl so that I didn't end up wearing it. Right. Because, and because it was uh breakfast, then you had already changed into the clothes you were going to wear to school, you know, and so there's no time to stop and go and deal with all of that. I remembered that. But then to your point, I am a child of the 80s. I was a, a little elementary school kid in the 80s and the breakfast cereal was ubiquitous. I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you anybody that didn't eat milk and cereal for breakfast when I was a kid. Um, and a snack, it, right? A snack yeah, after school. Totally. Um, and a bowl of cereal was sort of like a freebie, like the fruit bowl, right? It was like, you could always, there was all, that was always in the house was uh, the capacity to have a bowl of cereal. Um, and then to think about the Saturday morning of it all, I can remember my parents realizing that extra sleep was available to them if they didn't have to come <laughs> downstairs and pour milk in our cereal. So they, at a very early age, gave my brother and I tutorials on how to awesome. pour ourselves cereal and to deal with the bag of milk and to deal with the freshie, you know, to hold the top back a little on the brand new so that we wouldn't have a, an ocean of milk on the, all over the floor. And they put everything on the low shelf. So my little brother could also reach it and get himself a bowl um, because that was, we all got a freebie. They got extra sleep and we got to sit in front of the television with food, which at that time, in my family was not a thing. Eating in front of the television was absolutely not a thing we did, save the one or two hours on Saturday morning where we got this free bit. I think like the nostalgia of it, I think maybe more so in 
actually eating it again is you tapped into it there. You reminded me with the cereal milk, right. like just what Christina Tosi yes, has done course, with that concept, right? So just like a glimmer of a reminder of it, but not the actual replication of it, right? Like just, just taking yes. it and running with it. Yep. That's exactly it. Um, but I, I really, I appreciated the distinction here between the idea of comfort eating and nostalgic eating, right? Because the comfort is more like the comfort is now, right? I'm not feeling good now. I need something like cookies or starch or pizza or whatever to make me feel better now. Whereas the nostalgia is always a bit of a nod to before. Yes. Right. Yes. It's, it's how things to, to evoke what once was uh, you know, to try and bring it back. And that I hadn't really understood that we were perhaps doing both of those things right now. Right. right? That this crazy moment is actually uh, our, our urges and our leanings are in both of those directions. That, I that think was, so. That, I like that. I like yeah. that idea. Simpler times, easier times for us, right? As kids, like kind yes. of a reminder of that. Uh, but what, so what do you think? Like, do you think that it's possible to go home again in terms of eating those foods in their, in their, state and enjoying them in the same way i, I don't no. i don't uh because the other truth is that i have changed totally right uh i remember recently having a bite of a pop tart <laughs> and i can remember enjoying those things as a kid but the cook inside of me was like my god that pastry that's you know what i mean that flat stodgy nothing pastry yeah. because i have you know what i mean i've uh, since the last time i ate pop tarts i've gone to cooking school uh, right. And I've become a professional cook. So things have changed. And I was disappointed. Right. I was disappointed that I tasted that thing. And I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, you almost wish you hadn't. Right. Exactly. You yes. could stay intact because I think. Right. I think that I, I think you are right. I don't think you can go back no. and recreate it. I think you are lucky if you can remember it and yes. that you can get a few glimpses that remind you of it. OK. And so. I think that one thing that's been happening too with the comfort food and kind of nostalgic eating is, is obviously the pandemic, but I think that a lot of things that have been coming out now, like I'm thinking about Ina Garten's yes. new book. Oh, let's talk about this. Yes. Right. Modern comfort foods. So, I mean, she's like, it seems prescient, you know, but, but she was just expecting that it would be a stressful time for people because of the U S election so thinking, oh, people are going to be looking for comfort, but not realizing, obviously, at the time to what degree people would be looking for that comfort. Yeah. Yep. So it ends up being more relevant than ever. But what I thought was cool about this uh, concept is that so one of her all time favorite comfort foods uh, is uh, split pea soup from a can uh, that her mom would make her Okay. with cut up hot dogs. Wow. Did she put it in the book? Well, what she did is think like, okay, how can I adapt this to suit yes. my taste now, but still get the same sense of warmth okay. and satisfaction. Oh, good for her. Okay. So she created the soup from scratch, tons of vegetables, tons of herbs. And then instead of the hot dogs did just like a sauteed slices of uh, kielbasa. I was going to ask if it was kielbasa. Yes. Sophisticated grown-up version, or maybe chunks of mortadella would have been another. Thought. That's right, like, but like no more work, right? Because you're just like quickly sautéing it yes, in the pan, yeah. and then it's already cooked, it's smoked, and just toss it on top. So I loved this idea of taking that really treasured memory and a food memory, and just just 
adapt playing with it and i I just love that creativity of cooks good for her you know uh god bless her uh i have i as a young cook i was a major major fan uh desperately still want to go and be a house guest (laughs) (laughs) right because she looks like she's got the dreamiest versions of everything over there um and when i saw this comfort food book i was a little like really ina uh, another comfort like aren't all your cookbooks comfort food books <laughs> Anna, for real uh i really was i rolled i did roll my eyes a little bit about it all That's um, funny. but then i saw her in that video with that hilariously giant martini glass yeah she right? knows how to do it she knows yeah, how to do it she really does uh and then to hear this piece about this canned soup uh, this this grown up version. Um, that's that's compelling. That's very exciting. Uh, thanks for that. Thanks for that tip. I will go and find that book because uh, I'm I'm a dedicated fan for sure. Um, but at the same time, I was just like, I need comfort food from you, Ina. That's not just more starch and fat and starch and fats. Okay, well, this is what I was interested by too. Is that there are so many great vegetable recipes in that book. Right. There really are. And um, that's lovely to hear. Yeah. And that's one thing that she was talking about. She was like, yeah, this idea that, you know, you need to treat vegetables with enough love, right? To make them, to kind of make them fit into that comfort category, you know, whether it's making them a little cheesy or giving them a little creaminess. Crispy bits. Yes. Oh my goodness. But there's an amazing broccoli and kale salad in there that she tops with like a really soft boiled egg. Uh, really delicious Caesar dressing, right? So just like taking these really amazing winter vegetables and making them comforting. Uh, I I feel like even Ina has not been able to resist the auto, the auto Lenghi. (laughs) (laughs) Right. This is, I was just watching his masterclass uh, and he will spin you into a a vegetable based wonderland. Oh, that's awesome. Right? It is so good. I my mom and I were, our mouths were watering uh watching this watching this man just handle this food. He he really uh he really has done something. I love this. I'm going to go chase down this book. Thank you. So Laura, we we sort of have a, we have a bit of a loose theme today uh, that is about culture and tradition in food, um, and we've you know sort of started talking about passing down tradition and memories. Um, but I'm going to pull us right into the immediate and uh, a story about there not being enough cabbage grown in, as part of the harvest in Korea this year, and that the kimchi production is being dramatically impacted by this. Uh, I this this whole I felt really five alarm about all of this when I read this piece. And I thought because especially because the piece that I read talked about how climate change is what yeah. is affecting the crops like this. Uh, and, and and that Napa cabbage Right, that type of cabbage is particularly susceptible to temperature fluctu with temperature and uh, and water, you know, hydration fluctuations, uh, which is why it was the first to go right and be and be hit by uh, by the impact of climate change, um, and that to me got really really scary. Uh, right? I was like, the these impact these are things we don't think about, right? What happens when Korea can't grow enough cabbage to make kimchi? Uh, right. This, the, that, that feels really unsettling to me. Yeah. And when you think about a practice too, that has so much cultural significance, right. uh, it's, it's just, yeah, it's more than just the food. It's, it's everything that it represents. 
And it's that moment in time where the whole community comes together. Yeah. Right. We even have they, there's a name called Kim Jong mm-hmm. is the name, the, the, the collective practice of making the kimchi. The fact that everybody does this together and so that everybody now uh, is suffering because they can't do this. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting, too. And, and when you think about it as well, as a practice that really kind of cements that connection with nature, yes. right? And then having the reason why the harvest was disrupted this year, you know, be climate change. I mean, it's it's. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, I I remember uh, in the in the spring when the first the ramps peaked, the green ramps peaked out uh, through the surface, and then asparagus followed, and then the strawberries. I remember thinking to myself, oh, "Okay, Mother Nature is still doing her thing," mm. and I was so reassured by that. Mm-hmm. I, right, and as all the familiar things kept showing up on the tables at the farmers market. I was like, okay, good. Okay, great. Right. And I, I honestly believe that this, this gratitude is part of why we can't get our hands on a mason jar. Right. And I really feel like there was a conscious notion that we all need to lock this up. Right. Yeah, preserve, preserve. This. Yes, this is it. Right. We don't know what the future will bring, but for goodness sake, there should be good food. Uh, so to, to see, like, I just really connecting to my own deep gratitude about the fact that I got to, and, you know, to see that I have a freezer full of strawberry freezer jam and bits of kale uh, from my winter soups are, you know, they're, and my yeah. blueberries are patiently waiting for when I really need them. Uh, but to, to think about the fact that our friends in Korea are, you know, uh, are really suffering to make things, you know, I'm guessing they want to make whatever exists last uh, as long as it possibly can. And what does that mean to their sense of themselves if this really important thing has not been able to happen this year? Well, I was even thinking too about the fact that some producers are having to look elsewhere, right? Like yes. uh, potentially to China for cabbage. And I was remembering um, the chef, uh, Huni Kim. Um, okay. He, I was talking to him about his uh, cookbook, which is called My Korea, but he was talking about just about how he wanted to inspire people to go to Korea. And he was talking about how much the terroir meant to him Uh, and how he was like, you have to taste a cabbage in Korea. You have to taste a kimchi made from a cabbage in Korea. He's like, it's, it's like a, it's like as distinctive as, you know, a a specific Burgundy variety of grape or something like that. Right. Or Italian pomodoro tomato. Yes. Right. So you think about then what terroir means to people as well. Like, so is that, you know, let's say you have to, you have to get uh, cabbage, especially when it's a practice so tied to your land and your season, right? Yeah. Yes. Everything is from around you traditionally, and then you have to go elsewhere. Like, how does that affect the meaning for you as well? Yep. And, and, um, and for sure, it's like, the, there'll be notes in whatever the, whatever the harvest notes are, it'll be very clearly marked that those were the years of the imported time, you know, those were the years of the Chinese yeah. cabbage. Yeah. When this is what we had to make do with because of, I mean, I'm just imagining that we'll get to a point where they will, their, their cabbage, har- cabbage harvest will be restored. Uh, but it's, uh, these are, to me, these are sort of really important signals uh, that things are not okay. Right. Yeah. If fans are having trouble with, with, and, and the, the, these stories are all around, right. Even just thinking about like uh, Mexican farmers and hair and corn and, and what those, you know what I mean? The impact of climate change and obviously NAFTA and capitalism on that corn. Um, what that says to a people who are so defined 
by this thing that they make and that they eat. Absolutely. So this issue with uh, Napa cabbage and uh, it being more susceptible to, to climate change just made me think about this new study that's out of uh, Kew Gardens, the, the botanical gardens in London, their yeah, yeah. farm. Um, they just put out a, a state of the world's plants and fungi report. Okay. It really highlights how, uh, because, you know, thinking specifically about uh, kimchi and just the the idea that that napa cabbage kimchi is is just one type of of kimchi that it exists right, right of course there's an estimated 200 different varieties of, of kimchi you know radish number mustard leaf and on and on um but just this idea that we as a planet rely on so few crops mm. Uh, the, the vast majority of our food comes from only 15 crops. It's so crazy. Right? And oh it's, my God. It, it, it does make us... Uh, so I think what we're seeing here with the story about Napa cabbage and that just being the most recent example of mm-hmm. the effect of climate change on our, our food systems and food security is that there's there's so much potential out there and that's what this uh, this study really highlights. That is interesting. So essentially, if I'm understanding this correctly, the idea being that the fact that we have narrowed our production to just this one type of cabbage, uh, and now, uh, you know, now that the that the further impact of climate change is in front of us, when we only have one and it gets knocked down, we are in much worse shape. Yeah, and and really, what these researchers did, and this is just one part of the study because it's a really massive study, um, including researchers, hundreds of researchers from many different um, countries that, that collaborated on this report. So it's really uh, far-reaching. But the the food chapter specifically, um, they identified the researchers identified thousands of what they termed overlooked and underutilized plants. Right. And so really highlighting, and and they drew out uh, I think nearly one hundred of those plants in particular, um, and they didn't have any sort of algorithm to identify these plants as the, the plants they identified as having particular potential. They, they used their own expertise. And um, because the researchers from, were from all over the world, I mean, their, their expertise was, was so vast um, in terms of geography as well. But so they, they came up with this list of, of almost 100 that they thought um, there were really multi-purpose plants that held oh. uh, a lot of potential for global food. Right. And so the idea being that we just reinvest ourselves in cultivating these um, and we really could have a major uh, solution to some of these to some of these production issues that we're seeing. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of interesting because one of the ones that they highlighted is um, something called the marama bean, uh, which is native to the savannas of, of Southern Africa. And it's widely eaten there in a number of forms. Um, and it's, its flavor is, is uh, apparently tastes like cashew nuts when it's roasted, but Ooh. it's like a really big, like chestnut brown, really mm-hmm. big, smooth, bean, um, but it can be used, uh, one of the researchers, um, Tiziana Ulian, um, explained that, you know, you can get milk from this bean, you can get oil, you can grind it and, you know, use it as a flour for baking. Um, it's really just got so much potential. Oh, that's, it's really, really, these types of things get really exciting, right? This paired with 
uh, a commitment around regenerative growing uh, are like this real positive solutions for, you know, an otherwise really dismal scenario about right. our climate change and our food supply. Um, things like this have me so hopeful for what, I mean, if we just smarten up and make better choices, uh, the what's in front of us is so hopeful. True. So when you think about the fact that we really have sunk all of our, you know, we've really put everything into just a, such a small number of crops and, um, then to think on the flip side, just the biodiversity that's out there, uh, it is really exciting. And, and these are things too that locally are really used um, to their maximum potential, right? So it's tapping into that local knowledge, right. those traditions, it's learning from those and then kind of applying that in a global context because a lot of these underutilized plants, like they are used locally or maybe they're wild plants that people gather locally, but but their profile really hasn't um, traveled past that local, um, but they do have potential to be global. Well, and the, the cook inside of me is wants to get my hands on these things to start playing around in the kitchen. No kidding. See what they do. Obviously, that learning uh, from the, the wonderful grassroots traditions that they come from. But if in like if we can sort of zoom out and think about broader applications of this very localized knowledge, uh, I see I see a perfect opportunity for chefs. Uh, to start, you know, translating some of this, right? And and helping people to make these connections. You know, if we can, you know, if we invest and start producing these crops, um, we can help uh, with actually making, you know, connecting every in, in a more hopeful, positive version of something like a wartime ration. <laughs> well, what's cool too is like these plants that they identified uh grow well in harsh conditions essentially. Yes, right. Yes, yes. Um, so they're, they're hardy. They would suit, uh, a, a, you know, clim climate changes, yes. but, but also, um, I just think that, uh, well, one of them to give you an example, Akub, I've only heard of it in the context of Palestinian cuisine, so it looks like a thistle. It's a really beautiful plant and Whoa. it's actually not cultivated. It's, it's collected wild throughout the Eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East. Um, but it's, it's eaten like a vegetable. It can be pickled. It can be, um, you know, fried in olive oil with garlic, like that kind of mm -hmm. thing. Um, but the one, so that one I had heard of on this list, um, but the only one I had actually tasted on this list uh, was pandan leaves. Yes. And so thinking about pandan leaf, um, you know, I've appreciated its ability, its aromatic qualities and mm -hmm. in flavoring a dish, but I didn't know it, it produces, the female plant produces the most gorgeous segmented fruit. No way. Really? Yeah. Segmented similar to a pineapple, but I mean, it is stunning. And um, I, I had no idea that the female plant produced this fruit. So I, I just thought it was the leaf, but. Um, Ooh, okay. So the potential for that, that plant as well. It moments this, oh man, so many times throughout this, this ordeal of the pandemic, I have really been hit in the face with the truth of the degree to which we of you as humans have manipulated our food system and our food production, right? To meet our own ends, to the thing that is cheapest and most convenient and most, you know, even down to the nonsense about the fact that the not all the cucumbers work because they have to be straight enough to fit into the case, right? Like it's that degree of control that we have asserted over all of this in the name of uh, success and progress and efficiency and all of this. But look at what we've done. Right. So I've so I've had so many moments 
with the like, look at what we've done. <laughs> right. Oh, uh, just to see how the, the doors that, that, that we closed that we don't even realize that we've closed. Well, and I think in that sense too, um, the one thing that the researcher stressed about this study as well is that, so they identified these thousands, but she was like, we're, we're finding new plants, new edible plants all the time. Right. Right. But then, then that kind of goes with our awareness, humankind's awareness, right. Yes. Of, and, and our actions in unwilding the world. Right. So it's like, you have this, these things happening simultaneously. We're discovering these new varieties. Um, we're identifying these uh, new edible plants, but at the same time, our actions are um, are detrimental, right, to to the natural world. So I think it's it's a really interesting subject to think about right now. And I would encourage I would encourage uh, listeners to download uh, that report, um, the the it's state of the world's Q Garden spelled K E W Garden. Yeah. So it's uh, it's we can post uh, a link on this in the show notes for people to find that as well. Yeah, it's a fascinating. It's it, every every year. It's um, I, I enjoy reading it. Well, actually, it's been it's been the last four years they've been putting it out, but this is the first time they've combined plants and fungi in a single report. And okay. it's it's two hundred ten researchers in forty two countries. So it's it's an amazing read. It's, it's an exhaustive and trustable too. That's a that's a piece that I really appreciate. Awesome. Thank you for that. If you're enjoying our podcast, you can support us at patreon.com slash hotplatepod. Hotplate is part of the Frequency Podcast Network. Please consider leaving us a rating or review. It helps others find us. You can follow me at Joshna Maharaj on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks for joining us, Laura. You can find Laura on social media and her handles will be in our show notes. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato and Dennis Coyne with original music by Dave Bell. Thanks for listening.